<clears throat> I like science fiction movies. There are several out there regarding the apocalypse. For example, the movie 444 depicts what people might do if they knew at 4.44 a.m. the world would come to an end. That's what the movie's about, what people would do. Most of them tell uh, the story of alien invasions because that's how the world's going to end. In all of them, mankind saves himself. You see, mankind doesn't need a savior because he is quite capable of saving himself. And that is the theme of most movies that have anything to do with war, anything to do with, with aliens visiting us, or anything to do with plagues. Mankind doesn't need a savior. He can save himself. Well, the book of Daniel presents a different picture. You see, the world is going to end because God is going to bring the kingdom of man, or, or what's called the city of man, to an end. And he is going to usher in the kingdom of his beloved son. In the visions presented in Daniel, the entire world from Eden to the end is depicted. The structure of the book of Daniel is one indication of this. Now, in modern Bibles, chapters are marked off with numbers and paragraph divisions. The biblical writers, however, used other conventions. The book of Daniel uses chiasm to mark off his discrete units. The whole book is structured as a chiasm. God exiles his people to Babylon, chapter 1. God reveals four kingdoms to Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 2. God delivers his faithful from the fiery furnace, chapter 3. God humbles uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4. See, you're going back now the other way. Um, God humbles Belteshazzar. Those make up the central part of the chiasm. God delivers his faithful from the lion's den. Chapter 6, God reveals four kingdoms, followed by the kingdom of God. Chapter 7 through 9, and God delivers, reveals deliverance and resurrection from the dead. Chapters 12, 10 through 12. What you end up with is 10 chapters in the book of Daniel, not 12. Well, not only is the book structured that way, Daniel chapter 4 is structured that way too. You'll notice Nebuchadnezzar praises God, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And then we call that A. Then B, Nebuchadnezzar relates his dream, chapter 4, verses 4 through 18. Then C, the center part, Nebuchadnezzar's dream interpreted by Daniel, chapter 4, verses 19 through 27. That would be uh, B sub 1. And then Nebuchadnezzar praises God, A sub 1, the end of the chapter. So it's structured at a chiasm, and that's how we know that we have a discrete unit of thought. But, so what? I mean, that might make us easier to read, it might make, us, make it easier for us to understand, but so what? What is God teaching us? What does He want us to know? Well, I would suggest to you that God is teaching us that He humbles the proud that they might acknowledge Him as the only God and honor Him as such. That's basically what Daniel 4 is about. That sounds kind of self-centered, though, doesn't it? I mean, really. 
I mean, God's demanding people worship Him. God demands people acknowledge Him. God demands people do all this stuff. Because it's like, what is He? What is He? So self-centered that He just can't let people, you know, kind of go their own way. Haven't you heard that before? I've had people tell me that all the time. God's really concerned about Himself, isn't He? Kind of, kind of loves Himself so much that He doesn't even think about anybody else. Well, I guess you could think that way, but just. Just think for a moment on a human level. Just imagine a child whose parents reared him in a loving home. They gave him everything he needed. He never wanted for anything. They provided for her education. And when she got married, they threw her a brilliant ball to celebrate. However, once he leaves home, He never speaks to them or visits them again. She never so much as told her parents that they were grandparents for goodness sake. She doesn't tell them she loves them. I wonder, what would you think of a child like that? You would call that child an ungrateful wretch, wouldn't you? I can imagine the parents of that kind of an ungrateful, unloving child praying that God would wake them up to see how cruelly He was treating His parents. Well, beloved, mankind has done that and worse to God. Amen. For Him, therefore, to humble His creatures that they might honor Him is not an act of selfishness at all. It is rather an expression of His deep love for them because He wants their communion. He wants them to be near to Him. He wants them to have communion with them. Well, that's what He's doing with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we see in chapter 4. Now I want you to notice three points with me this afternoon. First, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the repentance of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the response of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pray. Holy Father, sometimes all of us fall into this trap where we look at the Bible and it's got nice stories in it and we think about how those stories might apply to us and we try to find moral examples that we could follow. And So often we fail to appreciate that you are revealing yourself to us. That really in your word you are speaking to us as we read and as we study It's your voice that we hear. It's not the voice of Daniel. It's your voice. That's what we believe. That's what Scripture says, that Scripture is God-breathed. That means you spoke it. And you speak it even now to us in written form, yes, but you speak to us and your Holy Spirit so works in us that we can can wrestle with what you say and then try to understand it more clearly and then walk in the light as you are in the light. And so we pray this morning that you will help us as we seek to understand Daniel, but not just to understand what he meant for his own time, but to actually hear your voice speaking to us now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, then, we want to think about the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to notice three details under that point. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar dreams. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 18. He tells about his dream, 
And again, the magicians, you know, his, his, his astrologers couldn't come in. They couldn't tell him anything. They could not make known the interpretation to, the, to, the, to him. And so he turns then to Daniel. And that's the second little detail. Daniel comes in and he listens to him. And uh, Daniel interprets the dream for him. Notice Nebuchadnezzar has this high view of Daniel because of Daniel's proven worth we see in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Daniel, Daniel has always proven himself to be a worthy servant of the king. In fact, he's so worthy that, well, we'll look at that when he gets the interpretation. But um, the king relates this dream to him, and it sounds really strange in one sense. In another, it doesn't. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Hmm. And its height was great. The tree grew and and became strong. And its top reached to the heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and, and its fruit abundant. And, and, and it was for food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. Fantastic tree, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of like one I read about in Genesis chapter 2. That there was a tree in the midst of the garden. Here, the tree is in the midst of the land or the earth. The word, the word in Hebrew for land and earth is the same word. It's, it's aretz. So it's the same word, land, earth. Now, there is a different word for, sometimes for land, but usually it's, that's the word that's used. So it's the, it's the tree in the midst of the land. And this tree gets really tall. And notice that it's life-giving. It's a tree that provides fruit, that provides fruit food for all. The beasts of the field find shade under it. The birds of the heavens live in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. Not just man. All flesh was fed from it. It's an echo back to Genesis with this kind of a hitch. This tree reaches to the heavens. And where is Nebuchadnezzar as he's describing this dream? He's in Babylon. And what is Babylon? Babylon and Babel are the same word. And Babel built a tower that wanted to reach to the heavens, right? To make a name for itself. And so you got this kind of a mixing of imagery because... Um, God is saying something to Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, and that is that um, whatever this tree is, it cannot replace the living God. We can have an Eden, right? We can feed all flesh, right? But we can't be God. And that seems to be a stumbling block for King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel comes in and he interprets the dream. Because as 
the king dreamt, he dreamt that angels came and told him to chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, lest the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Leave the stump. That's all you're going to leave is, is the stump. Again, another image that comes up in Scripture, only it's a stump regarding the stump of the, of the stem of Jesse. So the kingdom doesn't seem that it's going to end, at least right now, but Nebuchadnezzar's going to go down. And notice the, notice the, uh, notice the words that confirm this. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. And I don't know who they are, so I can't answer that. The decision by the word of the holy ones, probably angels, to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So you've got to understand this, Nebuchadnezzar. It's God who sets up the kingdom. Well, then Daniel comes in and um, he interprets it for him. But notice the notice Daniel's attitude. He doesn't he doesn't parade himself as oh boy, you're going to get yours now, right? <clears throat> what he does is he says he doesn't want to interpret it at first, and the king says, "Don't don't stop. Go ahead, do that." Verse nineteen. And, and Belteshazzar, Daniel, says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel doesn't want this to come upon Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. And then he explains it to him. The tree you saw, it grew, it became strong, it reached the heaven, it was all its leaves and all that, the fruit was abundant and everything like that. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the watcher saw, the Holy One saw it coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots. What that means is that your kingdom is going to fall. It's a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump and of its roots, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Now notice that. This isn't for good. This isn't permanent, Nebuchadnezzar. But you need to understand, and what we need to understand, is that God rules from the heavens. Amen. It's God who establishes kingdoms. And we could say God who establishes uh, countries. Yes. He's the one who establishes leaders. And they may seem really powerful to us right now. They may seem like their power is so great that it's reaching to the heavens. But guess what? It can't reach to the heavens. It's going to collapse. They're going to collapse. Why? Because God is the one who determines the beginning and the end. 
And that should be a comfort to us as we think about what's happened here in Daniel chapter 4. The kings of the earth have a place. God has put them in their position. The politicians are in the place that God wants them to be. But they can't let it get to their heads because God is the one who gives it to whom He will. And even the people, we say, we say, we the people, we the people are nothing without God. We can say we the people all we want, but it doesn't mean anything unless God is on our side. Yes. And we dare not be so proud as to think that we the people can affect all kinds of changes and keep all of our freedoms because we the people are in charge. We're not in charge. God is in charge. Yes. And if He wants to give this to some horrible leader, some horrible dictator, then He will do that. But not to hurt us, not to kill us, not to ruin us. He has another purpose than that. Well, we come then to the third detail under point one, and that is that Nebuchadnezzar actually realizes the dream. It's been communicated to him, interpreted for him, and so now it comes that after 12 months, the king... uh, was in Babylon. He's on the roof of his royal palace. And I mean, just look at him. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of whose majesty? My majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there there fell from heaven a voice, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall make you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time will pass over until you know that the most high rules. Notice that it's repeated. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. That's a repeated phrase. And so immediately then that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That should remind you of another king who was standing in, uh, I think he was in Tyre, uh, near Tyre at the time of the apostles, and Herod stood and said, oh, you know, everybody was saying, great, you know, great Herod, the God, and he died immediately, damn, because he did not give God the glory. Now we may wish that might might happen sometimes. (laughs) you know, before our eyes, but think about how frightening that is. I mean, a lot of kings and a lot of leaders have said similar things and they didn't die. But God gives us examples in the scripture to tell us, you know what, don't fear, I'm the one that's in charge, I will give the kingdom to whom I will, and and when I will. And, And we need to embrace this, we need to, we need to come to the, to grips with the fact that God is the sovereign God, and yet He's the sovereign and holy God who wants to have a, a communion with us. Amen. And He's provided a way for that through Christ Jesus our Lord. And uh, we dare not hold on to our sin. We rather should humble ourselves, because that's exactly what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He repents. In verses 34, this is the second point. Repentance of Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34 to 36. At the end of the days, that is that time period that he was under that, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he lifted my eyes and my reason returned to me. 
And I bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever. Why? Because His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to Him, What have you done? Paul repeats these words. I didn't go to that passage this morning, but he does repeat those same, the same words. They come up other places in Scripture too. Who are we to say to God, well, what have you done? Why have you done it this way? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, I think it's one of the sins that I struggle with. I think, I think maybe everybody does, though I won't accuse everybody. But it's a sin that's common among people. We begin to suffer something, and we say, why did you do this to me? And some people have the audacity to say, God, haven't I been serving you for X amount of time? Haven't I done such and such for you? And, and yet you bring this upon me? Um, we're always asking the question, why? Which is not necessarily inappropriate, but it's the wrong question. Yes. I mean, God may never tell us why. He builds a hedge around us, Right? And Satan comes along and says, oh, well, that person loves you because you built a hedge around him. So he says, okay, I'll take the hedge away. So now is he doing something? Is he punishing us? We always say, oh, God's punishing me for a sin. Maybe he's not punishing you for a sin. Maybe he's using you as an example before the heavenly realm, before the powers and principalities and powers in heavenly places to show them that you're going to love him even if if he does remove the, 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 the fence from around you. To show you, to show them that, 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 that He loves you and you're going to love Him despite what goes on in this world. Amen. We always have a tendency to think either we've sinned or we, we haven't sinned because we're so perfect. God would never do this to us and yet our problem is that we need to understand that God is um, all inhabitants of the earth. I mean, it's hard for us to think of this but you're counted as nothing. Amen. Now that doesn't mean you are counted as nothing but before God, compared to God... <clears throat> And God is going to do according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That means everybody. This is probably one of the most difficult truths for people to accept about the biblical revelation of God, that He is sovereign. They like People do like the sovereignty of God, like they say, oh no, God is sovereign over all things. I got in a car accident, so everything's going to be okay. You know? Or God's sovereign over all things, and something else is going to be okay. And they, they rely on the sovereignty of God, and they talk about the sovereignty of God, but when they look in the Scripture and see the extent of the sovereignty of God, it bothers them, it disturbs them, because it leaves them without a free will. It leaves them without, you know, without being able to affect anything. And it leaves them in a place where they have to totally and completely depend upon God. Well, that's where we all are right now. Do you know your thoughts are dependent upon God right this minute? Do you know that? Do you know how much it would take to take your thoughts away from you? That. You could have a little blood clot in your system and it could hit your brain. Bam. No more memories. No more no more know who your parents are. No more being able to talk, maybe not being able to walk. That's how that's how fast it happened. Bam. Have you ever seen a stroke? I have. One killed my mother. Bam. It was all over. She was breathing. 
she wasn't responsive to anything. I was talking to her one second, and the next second, <laughs> that was it. Wow. It happened that fast. Mm-hmm. And it happens that fast with people. Yeah. Your thoughts, you think you're so smart, you're not. <laughs> Your intelligence can be re- reduced to idiocy with the blink of an eye. Right. So what we need to do is to remember that we should be thankful to God for all that we have. Do you have abilities in math and science and in history and things like that? Well, be thankful for that. Use it for the praise of God's glorious grace. But don't build yourself up like, oh, wow, here I am, Mr. Smart Guy. Because it can be taken away so very easily. Nebuchadnezzar stood there and said, look at this. Look what I built! Yep. Bam! It was over. For a time. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then God restored him. And we see that he did that. And so Nebuchadnezzar then, after he repents, he responds to God in verses... And I, I combined verse four, 4, verse 1 and 2, with verse 37, because they actually are saying the same thing. In the beginning, in verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for who? For me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. That comes up more than once, but it it comes up in verse 34 again, but then in verse 36 and following. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Whew! Wow. Thanks, you know. Look what I did. I recovered. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Yeah, I saw it. (laughs) Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, I want us to think about something, because today the gospel is being peddled. You know, it is. It's being peddled. It's being sold. And repentance seems to be lost in the sea of God is love. Everybody talks about the fact God is love. I believe that. But it it seems like the gospel is being lost in this concept God is love and God doesn't do anything to anybody. (laughs) Everything is okay because after all, God is love. You know, you can you you know you could you could do or be whatever you want. It's okay. God is love. Oh, just don't do anything really bad. It reminds me of Roman Catholicism because that's what I was reared in, right? You know, we had mortal sins and venial sins. Well, the venial sins—they're not too bad. You know, it's you know everybody commits venial sins. Everybody does this, and everybody lies. You know, everybody every everybody has sexual lust. Those are venial sins. Oh, but don't commit a mortal sin. But you go to the priest and you confess your sins every week before the. You had to go every Saturday before you could have the communion on the next day, and you'd go and you'd confess, and sometimes I'd have to. Well, I have to say honestly, I never had to think about the sins I committed. I had such a list that uh, you think they got tired of listening to me. But um, really, you know, there were moral and venial sins. So we have that. We're Protestants and we don't believe that. But what does it sound like when people say, well, everybody does that? Mm. I knew a man who was unfaithful to his wife. 
Right? And his brother tells him, don't worry about it. Now this guy goes to church. The brother went to church. Don't worry about it. Every, everybody does that. Just confess it and go on. Well, I've got to tell my wife. No, don't tell your wife. Don't, don't bother with it. Just, just confess it and go on. That was, it. that was the brother's advice to this guy. Why? Well, because God is love. It's okay. That's just, that's just a venial sin. I guess murder would be something like a moral sin. but So people talk about sin and repentance, but they just give that lip service. Because you, you see, repentance involves humility. A person must humble themselves to acknowledge that they have not only committed sins, but they are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to just notice something in Psalm, uh, Psalm 32. When we talk, when we use that for confession of sins sometime. Uh, David, David says, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. What brings a person to make that kind of confession to God? Well, again, Psalm 38 For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. And I need salvation. So do not forsake me, O Lord my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. I confess my iniquity. I confess my iniquity. I confess my sin. When you do that, what are you you doing? You You are humbling yourself before God. You're saying to him, I did sin. I did do what's wrong. You know, Proverbs says if you get in trouble with a friend and you, you, uh, you lend him some money or you, you stood up for him and signed you know, for his loan or something, go to him right away, right away. You know, humble yourself and go to him. Tell him yes. you know, your wrongdoing and get it, get it settled. Why? Because humility is required if you're going to honestly confess your sins to God. I remind you of this incident in the life of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7. You remember this. The Pharisees and some of the scribes that gathered together um, around him when he had come from Jerusalem. And uh, some of his disciples were eating the bread with impure hands. Oh, they were unwashed hands. Bad, bad. The Pharisees, you know, they, uh, the Jews, they don't eat, eat unless they carefully wash their hands. But if, now... There's nothing wrong with washing your hands. So don't, I think people get Jesus mixed up in saying, you know, don't wash your hands. It's a good idea to wash your hands. Especially, you know, if you're going to go to a restaurant, it's not a bad idea to wash your hands, okay, before you eat. Now, I I don't really pay attention to that much, but it's not a bad idea. There's nothing wrong with that. But they weren't washing their hands for that reason. They were washing their hands so that they would be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And so they were doing it for the wrong reasons. So they observed these rituals, such as washing cups and pitchers and copper pots. They were always doing this to make sure everything was clean. 
And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, and but beat their bread with pure with impure hands? But eat their bread bread, bread with impure hands. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold the tradition of men. You set aside the commandment of God. Why, why do they do that? Well, Jesus, how do they do that? Jesus tells them, well, you honor your... The Bible says, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. Whoa. People don't like to hear that one. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother anything of mine, you might have been helped by his korban. That is to say, it's given to God. And you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Now... Jesus straightens everybody out and he says, listen, a man is not defiled by that, which, by that which goes into him. Now, he doesn't mean that it's okay to go ahead and eat, you know, uh, you know dirty worms or something. He's not talking about eating things, you know, you know, he's not talking about eating filth. He's, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand this principle. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. That's what makes you unclean. I want you to notice something, what Jesus says as he goes on. He says, that which proceeds out of the mouth of man, or proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murderers, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, envy, slander, pride, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. Pride. Pride is right in the same list with evil thoughts or fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries. Pride is right up there with murder. Pride. And what is pride? Pride is the exact opposite of humility. It's pride that got Nebuchadnezzar into trouble. It's pride that got Herod into trouble. It's pride that gets you and I into trouble so often because we don't want to confess that we've sinned. We don't want to give up our sin. We don't want to give up our view of the world. We don't want to give up what we think because we don't want to listen to what God thinks. We want to set Him aside and follow our own traditions. That's exactly what we do. But we need to stop. We stand in the presence of the living and true God. There is none other. So the question is, will you humble yourself, confess your sin, and ask Him to forgive you? Or will you continue with a proud heart to live the way that you want to live and to eschew God's commands. Will you continue to interpret life on your own terms or will you humble, will you humble yourself, turn to God and understand life on His terms? There is no middle ground. Amen. There are not three options. There are only two, life or death. So the question is then, which one do you choose? 
Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. James says this, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made dwell to dwell in us. But He gives us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, He says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Amen. Now lest you think that pastors are not guilty of, of being proud. I'll tell you, we all are. Amen. Do you know how we are proud? It used to be a long time ago that ministers would spend more hours in prayer before God on a particular passage of Scripture before they preached it. Whereas today, men spend most of their time not praying about a passage, but analyzing a passage. It's very easy to get to the place where, where a man thinks, oh, I can diagram this whole paragraph in Greek. I can do a discourse analysis in Hebrew and in Greek. Oh, I got it all analyzed. I got it all figured out. I can see the chiasm. Can you see the chiasm? Oh, look at this. Look at that. I've analyzed the text. I've analyzed it to death. Where's my prayer? Oh, I forgot. Dear God, help me get through this sermon, please. Make it be a blessing to people. That's it. Bye. Gone. Who, am I, who, who, who are we depending on? Who am I depending on when I do that? Yours truly. You come to me and you say, oh, that's a great sermon. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So happy. <laughs> that's right. Don't tell me it's a good sermon. It feeds my pride. Oh, seriously. That's one of the greatest problems today. Sinclair Ferguson was talking about this in one of his lectures I listened to a couple of weeks ago. We spend far more time, and we should spend time in the Word of God. We should spend time analyzing it the way that I just described. But that's not enough, because that's depending upon me. And i got to stop depending upon me and depend upon Him. Because... It's the Holy Spirit that opens my heart. And it's the Holy Spirit that opens your heart and your mind. I can't do that. I mean, Joel Osteen does that, but he's a manipulator. And so are these other guys. They can manipulate people and people go, Oh, it feels so good. I don't want to do that. God, kill me before I do that. But I'm telling you, we have to be careful as ministers. So, if you think that you struggle with pride? So do I. So does every pastor on the face of the earth. And if he's not willing to say that he does, well then, God help him. Because we all struggle with it. We struggle with it in our very preaching ministries. And like Nebuchadnezzar, God may bring us down. So be it. Thanks be to God. He never leaves us or forsakes us or gives up on us. I like science fiction movies. There are several out there regarding the apocalypse. For example, the movie 444 depicts what people might do if they knew at 4.44 a.m. the world would come to an end. That's what the movie's about, what people would do. Amen.
Let's pray.